From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, how parents can protect children from sexual abuse. News about the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts, might leave families feeling vulnerable. We meet a Colorado social worker who's dedicated her career to prevention. She has developed strategies by talking with offenders, like ways to recognize that an adult is grooming a child. Plus, a politics week in review after an off-year election that a lot was riding on. And a Fort Collins man who has skied 300 months in a row, mostly in Colorado. The summer months get rough. Very icy, covered in dirt. A little tough to make turns, but you got to do what you got to do. It's given him a front row seat to climate change. Then the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame honors a civil rights champion. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I acknowledged something on the air recently, that I was sexually abused as a kid by a babysitter. And I was moved to reveal this because of the courage of a guest, Marilyn Vanderbur, the former Miss America from Denver, is the subject of a new documentary about the years of abuse she endured. Her hope in speaking up, and mine too, is that it might help others feel less shame. Well, many of you shared your own stories afterwards. I'm grateful for that. And I heard from a woman in Broomfield who didn't want to use her name. She was listening to the interview in the car with her husband. I just was floored in part because of the openness, but also because I thought to myself, oh my God, that happened to me. And I've never told anyone about that. And, you know, this is only over a few seconds, but I just started thinking about the fact that I have an 18-month-old daughter, and it just occurred to me, I really need to tell my husband about what happened. If anything, just because we need to talk about this in order to protect our daughter. And so I told him, and it just felt really good to let someone know that had happened to me, but moreover, to talk about our action plan for how we're going to keep our daughter safe. Their action plan. And that's what we're going to focus on in the first part of the show today. After the report on childhood sexual assault in Colorado's Catholic churches, after revelations about the Boy Scouts, there's a lot of talk of healing and reducing shame, and rightly so. But what about prevention? How can parents and people who work with kids help stop this from happening? That is Feather Burkhauer's Life's Work. She's founder of Parenting Safe Children based in Boulder. A social worker by training, she has taught countless courses to parents and professionals, lessons based on years of study and on her interviews with offenders. And Feather, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. As I said, I was abused by a babysitter. It was same for the listener in Broomfield. Uh, for me, I think it was a one-off. Is it reasonable to think that what happened to us could have been prevented? Well, first, I'm sorry that happened to you as a child. Thanks. And Yeah. And it is absolutely my belief that we can prevent child sex assault. And I'm so excited to talk about that today. Yeah. How do you think in the case of a babysitter that might have been prevented? And I, I want to make it clear that I'm not casting any aspersions on my parents who were loving, supportive parents, but uh, is there something they could have done differently? 
and we don't want to put blame on them either. Um, but it is my belief, and many people in, the, in this field of prevention, that adults are responsible for protecting kids from sex assault, that children can learn protection skills, and it's important that they do, but ultimately it is up to adults to protect kids, not for children to have to protect themselves. So the way we do that is by creating environments that minimize risk. In the case of a babysitter, right. what would that look like? Well, what that might look like if the parents were educated about body safety and sex abuse is first interviewing and discussing and screening a babysitter before you hire that person and discussing what we call body safety rules, boundaries, expectations, what your parents might expect of the babysitter around touch and around secrets and around um, playing games around affection, around kissing, around hugging. To just have that conversation with the babysitter out in the open. Absolutely. To, to use all of the terms and all of the ideas that you did. Absolutely. And that's what we call, or I call, building a prevention team. And so what I recommend to parents is before you hire a babysitter, leave your child at a school, choose a camp, choose a Boy Scouts group, a youth organization, that you discuss your expectations and your children's body safety rules with all of your caregivers, because the people that you choose to leave your children in the care of might be the most important decision you make. I wonder how your conversations with offenders have helped fashion this approach. Uh, is there some sense that if you simply had that frank conversation with someone who is uh, wanting to or likely to abuse a child, that that just sends them running. Right. I love this question because it's it's actually fascinating to me when I meet with offenders, with women and men. And I can't, no one can promise anything around prevention. But what I have learned and what offenders tell me when I ask this very question, I, I ask offenders, what would you have done if the parent if you would, what would you have done if, if the parent of the child you were babysitting for, yeah, or you were the teacher of, would have discussed, no touching private parts. We don't keep secrets. My child's the boss of her body, and had a conversation around these expectations and around body safety. What would you have done if that person discussed this with you before, you sexually touched the child? And I've heard everything, Ryan. I've seen everything in this work, and I get chills when I ask this question because what I'm typically told is I'd run for the hills. I wouldn't go near that child. Now, there's always going to be someone, there are offenders who would say, I'll try harder. That is true. But for the most part, people who sexually abuse children, they want an easy road in. They don't, they want opportunity, they want access, and they don't want to be known and caught. And so having what might seem to parents like a, an uncomfortable conversation uh, may yield protection for their child. You also train adults to look for the signs of grooming. First off, what is grooming? So grooming is a set of behaviors that set a child up to be isolated, to begin to trust. It's a friendship-building process over time. Not all kids are groomed, but most of the time they are, and it happens over weeks to months to years. And what's fascinating to me is that offenders tell me they often groom the child's adults before they groom the child, because if they can get the child, the adults to be trusting 
this person, oh. then the child witnesses that and trusts as well. So it's a it's a process of friendship building to isolate the child, to build secrecy, and to build friendship. I remember speaking to someone who had been abused in the Catholic Church, and his abuser was very good friends with his family. Almost always. So what are the signs to look out for? I mean, if someone is, is befriending me and I believe that they're my friend as an adult, as a parent, uh, I'm likely to then trust my child with them. What right. behaviors should I be on the lookout for? Right. So the first thing I'll say is we must have this on our radar in order to be able to be looking for the signs. Yeah. And so adults need to be willing to feel that discomfort you talked about uncomfortable before. Are you willing to feel uncomfortable so your children never have to is a question I ask all the time. So some signs of grooming. There's so many. So one, one is a, an obsession with and a pattern of touch beyond the normal loving affection one gives a child. Tickling, wrestling, roughhousing, uh, bouncing children on knees, massaging, patting butts beyond when the child wants that touch any longer or when a boundary has been set. So have that on your radar. Have it on your radar. You're also very sensitive to separating a child when the child is separated Separating from, group. from groups of children, separating from other siblings, um, separating in schools and youth organizations, even in a family, separating one sibling from another sibling in the case of incest. Um, other signs are uh, demanding secrets with children, Silencing children, showering children with gifts, and I don't mean grandma at, at Christmas time or Hanukkah, uh, doing special favors for children, a teacher giving a child an A when the child's failing, someone allowing a child to stay up late past their bedtime, and most parents do that once well, in now a while. That, right, that feels awfully innocent, but I, I want to move the discussion into what might seem like innocent behavior that you think can be the precursor to something. So if you're just joining us, I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters, and my guest is Feather Burkauer, who is the founder of Parenting Safe Children based in Colorado. We wanted to have a discussion about how to prevent childhood sexual assault. Obviously, this has been in the news a lot lately. There's a lot of talk about healing. The focus now is prevention. You mentioned secrets. Uh, you mentioned what might seem like like innocent behavior. Why are you so focused on secrets of all kinds, even ones that seem innocent as a potential slippery slope? Well, let's give listeners an example of an innocent secret. Okay. Okay. So most people are guilty of this. So anyone listening, let the guilt roll off your shoulders right now because we've all probably done this. This is about behavior change. It's about awareness. So an innocent-like secret Maybe to ask a child to keep a secret about eating extra ice cream. Daddy won't like this. We're going to eat ice cream for breakfast. Don't tell mommy we got a speeding ticket today. Don't tell uh, your sister you got gum during her nap. Don't tell daddy that we bought shoes at the mall. These kinds of innocent secrets mimic what an offender does when they're in that grooming process. So teaching a young person to keep something secret. To keep something secret. So why, Ryan, why do you think a parent would ask a child to not tell the other parent that they ate ice cream for breakfast. Why would someone do that? Well, you don't want to get in trouble with your, your partner, your spouse. Correct. And who is the burden on? Right. You're placing the burden on the child. On the child. When it's actually the burden on and who are, And what are we asking the child to do? To keep a secret and to, in a way, to be very adult in that role, Correct. right? As Correct. A, a kind of 
emissary to keep a secret and to lie. And that's breaking the body safety rule that I'm suggesting parents teach. We don't have secrets in this family. So we unknowingly sometimes make kids more vulnerable, not purposefully, but unknowingly. Uh, In looking at your training with Parenting Safe Children, I was reminded of something that my grandmother used to do that I despised. Um, I called it cheek torture. Yes. And I would walk in the door and she would grab me by the cheeks, and I mean the the face cheeks, and she would tug at them, you know, as if my face were rubber. And, you know, it was her way of conveying how much she loved me, but it was painful and awkward and I despised it. And I felt uh, like I had to do that. You know, that was my way of showing my grandmother I loved her. You have uh, real restrictions about this. Uh, tell me about that. Okay, So I had the same experience, by the way. Grandpa squeezed the cheeks and the scruffy beard and the smelly breath and all of that. So many of us have experienced that. So the body safety rule that we want to teach children is around consent, that no one is allowed to make them give or have a kiss or a touch if they do not want to. And... Many parents agree with that body safety rule, and they want to teach the child they're in charge of their own body, and no one can force affection. But unknowingly, we break that body safety rule by saying, go kiss your grandma, right? Go kiss grandpa. And the child doesn't want to, so play this out with me. I say, go kiss your grandma, and the child says, no. No, I don't want to right now. And the parent says, but you, you got to show, you know, your elder's love. And if you don't kiss grandma... She's going to feel bad. She's going to feel bad. You're going to hurt her feelings. And when we say this to children, which is so common, what do you think the message to the child is? Your body is not completely your own. Correct. And we're teaching two- and three-year-olds to manage the feelings of other people. And so what's so contradictory about this is that at the same time, we focus prevention on children. We teach kids to say no if anyone touches their private parts. We teach kids to scream and yell and get away and say no. And this is an important point here in prevention. I am all for that, and I teach parents to teach their kids to say no. We all want children to feel emboldened, emboldened empowered. empowered. Yeah. However, how can we expect a five-year-old child to look up to his uncle and say, don't touch my privates, no, I don't like that, when we adults are witnessing the preceding behaviors, which are grooming, the preceding behaviors to touch, and we don't say a word because we don't want to accuse and blame. That's what I mean by adults are responsible, not kids. And you are calling for consistency in parenting. Uh, So uh, my guest recently, Marilyn Vanderburg, a former Miss America from Denver who's written about the abuse she suffered as a kid, had something to say that I'd like you to respond to. Perpetrators don't stop. Has one, I'm sure, but generally speaking, I did massive research before I wrote the book. They just don't stop. What are your thoughts about rehabilitation, about whether people who do this can stop? So I think it's important for people to read current research. Um, I want to say that I love and adore Marilyn Vandiver. Um, she is my role model and a hero to me. Um, and I listened to her statement as a survivor of incest that she describes what has happened to her. And what the research shows is that some perpetrators can be stopped. And some can't. 
and that's the truth. Pedophiles, which we don't have time to go into here, that's a person who is sexually aroused by children, is different than a situational abuser. And those people with proper treatment sometimes can be stopped. However, I wouldn't leave a kid with that person either. Hmm. Just briefly, I want to underscore some of what we've heard here. Have the conversations. Have them with babysitters. Have them with schools. Have them with camps, after-school programs. Most often, who is likely to abuse a child? Is it someone the child knows? Almost always. Almost always. The stranger danger idea, though that exists, is not the bulk of what we're talking Absolutely about Absolutely not. Feather, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Ryan, for putting the spotlight on prevention. Feather Burkauer of Boulder founded Parenting Safe Children, which trains adults to prevent childhood sexual assault. I'm really grateful once again to you and our audience who shared your own experiences. This is CPR News. The first ski areas in Colorado only recently opened for the season. So how is it that Lee Christian, a Fort Collins attorney, has been skiing for months now? Well, he's a year-round skier. Get this, he has found skiable snow in the West every month for 25 years. It's given him a front seat as well to climate change. And Lee, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. The math here is that you've skied 300 months in a row most of it in Colorado. I can't imagine that skiing in August is particularly easy. What are your toughest outings? Definitely August and September uh, as things have melted away. Sometimes you get snow in late September and can find a piece of snow to ski on that has some fresh snow on it, though. What do you do in August, though? You know, there's a lot of patches of snow that stay year-round that you can uh, find and ski. Patches? So how big a pa- or how small a patch? football field sized, I would say, if not uh, a couple of football fields. There's still glaciers that you can go to. Some of this is rather unsatisfying skiing, I would have to imagine. Very rough at times. Very icy, covered in dirt. A little tough to make turns, but uh, you got to do what you got to do. I imagine you go through skis a little faster than the average skier. Oh, I take them in for tunes a lot more, that's for sure. (laughs) Okay. And is this more dangerous skiing? I mean, I have to think that uh, skinned knees and things like that are a possibility. You know, that's a great question. I I think that uh, skiing on ice obviously has uh, more challenges, but um, some of the things that we do in May and June are climbing up peaks and skiing down on very steep slopes. And uh, if we call them fall or die, you can't fall. You need to be standing up. So I think some of the things in May and June may be even a little bit more dangerous than the, the ice you ski in August or September. I want to get to how you began this crazy adventure, uh, which you're incredibly committed to in a bit. But what have you noticed about the changing nature of snow and ice in the face of climate change? Well, you see it a little bit, and that is uh, glaciers receding. Um, You see winters shortening um, at the beginning of winter and the end of winter. Or you see more slush rain events rather than snow events. Hmm. You see a lot of dirt, more dirt events uh, than I used to see, where 
um, dirt will blow in from the southwest uh, onto the slopes, which causes it to melt more quickly. Right. The science there is that the dirt blows onto the white snow and dark color absorbs sunlight more. So it leads to melting faster than just plain white snow. And those are the things that I've noticed just in a short period of time in 25 years. Glaciers you mentioned. Give us some examples of glaciers you've seen retreating. Well, there's Andrews and Tyndall. St. Mary's is the one that I I notice the most because I I frequent that in September just because it's an easier access than some of the other glaciers. Yeah, I think of St. Mary's, which is fairly close to the Front Range. And where were those other glaciers? Those are in the National Park. So Rocky Mountain National Park is a place I I frequent uh, through spring and summer and fall. Sometimes you have to leave Colorado to find skiable snow, though this is more of a Western adventure at times. I don't need to, but August and September (laughs) are such a challenge sometimes that I go to Oregon, Mount Hood, um, which has a lift, which is really nice to have at the end of August, early September. So I'll go the last day of August and the first day of September and knock off two months skiing on lifts at uh, Mount Hood. Ah, so clever. If you bridge the months, then you've been able to ski in both. I see. Has there been a month where you thought it's actually not going to be possible? I've not. Knock on wood, had that happen yet. You've always had a good option. I've always had a good option. Do you expect that to change? I mean, just based on the trends you're seeing. I think there will always be a piece of ice that I can find somewhere to ski on. Okay. <laughs> it may not be satisfying or all day skiing by any means. Or a long hike to get to it. I see. How did this start? You know, I, I, I kept journals. And so I've been looking through my journals this being the 25th year. So you document each ski trip? Each ski trip is documented into a journal. It didn't start with a journal. Um, I think we started that in 12 to 18 months in. I think we must have read about something uh, somewhere where somebody said uh, you can ski year-round. And I knew that we could do it because we had been doing it. And so just took it up, and it's been a cause ever since. It sounds like this began with a group of friends? Yes, uh, who also had streaks, who... uh, have uh, gone by the wayside due to injury over the years. Oh, are you the last standing, the last skier standing? At least in my core of friends, yes. Have you found other communities of people who do this? Oh, there's lots of us. There's lots of crazy uh, skiers out there who have streaks longer than mine. This must affect relationships and, you know, and work. Well, I'm always plotting to go skiing. I'm always watching the weather. I'm always uh, checking snow cams and snow stakes. I have the greatest wife in the world. We've raised two kids through all this. So she's had to stay home with the the babies. And I have great friends who have always helped me through this. So uh, I've developed great relationships. I'm lucky because I have my own business. So... Um, and provide some flexibility. Yes, a lot of flexibility. A lot of my friends say I'm semi-retired already because I'm always carving out one, two, five days a month to try to go skiing. Did you engage in any special ritual when you hit the 300th month? We're going to have a celebration at uh, A Basin, I think. One of the resorts that's usually earliest to open. That's it's, correct. Seems appropriate. Thanks so much, Lee. Lovely to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for hearing me. Lee Christian, a Fort Collins attorney, just skied for the 300th consecutive month. This is Colorado Matters.
There was an off-year election this week that a lot was riding on. Chris, the stakes only get higher in 2020. For a look at what happened and what's ahead in Colorado politics, CPR political editor Megan Verlee is back. Hi, Megan. Hi, Ryan. And Dana Caulfield, senior editor at the Colorado Sun. Hi again, Dana. Hey there. Now, if folks are feeling some political fatigue, I promise that there's a little fun ahead as well. Think movie trivia. Uh, but why don't we start with Prop CC, an attempt to let the state keep money that would have otherwise gone to taxpayers under Tabor. CC went down, and yet progressive groups are pushing even more aggressive measures against the taxpayers' Bill of Rights for next year. Dana, what is up with that tension? Well, uh, the tension must have been building even before the election, about 30 seconds seconds after CC was called a loss. We started hearing from places like the Colorado Fiscal Institute and the Bell Policy Center, uh, both who are... Uh, pushing major tax reforms in the next year. First, we have the Colorado Fiscal Institute, which would like to totally overhaul and undo um, Tabor. Um, They submitted 19 different titles to get on the ballot next year. One of them was accepted. Um, It has been through the Supreme Court and is hanging out there, and heaven knows whether it will actually make its way out or not. And then on uh, the other side, the Bell Policy te- uh, Center is testing the waters of for an overhaul of the state's income tax system. They'd like to remove our flat tax of 4.63% for everyone and return to the, a graduated tax system like we had before 1987. Um, in October, they had Keating Research poll likely voters and learned 57% supported increasing income taxes for people who make more than $300,000 a year, which is roughly the top 5% of earners in Colorado. So that's kind of interesting. Other fun fact, um, if anybody's interested, this was shocking to me. Okay. Uh, 8% of the people polled said that they felt that their taxes were too low. Wow. That is actually surprising. Mm-hmm. be interested to meet that 8%. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would say, too. <laughs> I will say that uh, there does seem to be kind of a counter movement developing against these sort of um, anti-Tabor higher tax measures. Uh, conservative groups are trying to talk about whether they should put something on the ballot that would actually strengthen Tabor. And what it would address is fees. Right now, Tabor requires a public vote for tax increases. It requires a public vote for, fa- for bonds. But governments that want to raise money, they can raise fees without having to go to the public. So conservatives are starting to say, well, maybe there should be a public vote for fees because that's where government's going to rely on its money. And this does kind of come with a history of competing groups playing ballot chicken. They both put competing measures on and try and drive each other off the ballot. Uh, We had Democratic House Speaker Casey Becker on the show Wednesday. She basically wrote CC. She said it was a complicated subject to talk to voters about, but uh, she raised something else I thought was interesting. It is a reflection that, you know, voters don't trust the legislature right now. Voters were told, oh, you can't trust that they're actually going to spend this money on roads and education. And they believed that. So I do think that there's something that we in the legislature can do better to build trust. What do you make of that? Megan Verlee, you added a lot of the Capitol coverage. I mean, I think there's something to it, but I think it's an oversimplification. If you look at our history with uh, ballot measures, Coloradans do not vote to give the state more money. They voted down a tobacco tax. Proposition DD, which tax where the tax goes on the casinos and would support water plans, barely squeaked through. So to say that this is all about how people feel about the legislature, I think misses the big picture that Coloradans have never voted for a statewide tax increase. Dana, what do you make of CC's failure? Counterpoint on that. I think that we do have a trust problem 
with the legislature. And if we took a look at the Democrat wave that went through the ledge um, in the past year and then look at what results um, looking specifically at maps, for example, for um, CC, how hard the rural areas voted against this. I think that there's a moment about um, the oil and gas bill overhaul and some of the other things that happened that um, we on the front range where we feel like, oh, yeah, that thing is going to happen, but we aren't really paying attention to what's happening in the rural areas and the sentiment in the rural areas of Colorado. And those folks vote. And so you see an urban-rural split in this. And that is also not a new split in Colorado. I mean, I remember the Hickenlooper administration early on uh, coming under a lot of fire for not tending enough to rural Colorado. Yeah, and I think it's a legitimate concern. I mean, the folks who live in, in rural areas have said this time after time after time. You know, you're not representing our point of view. Your environmental initiatives have unexpected impacts on farming, for example. And if we're going to govern rightfully, we need to pay attention to that. We have talked about the prospect of more Tabor-related measures on the ballot next year. But what else, you know, besides candidates, might Coloradans be voting on in 2020? Dana? Well, the ballot's already getting full. Um, We'll have two uh, big deal issues. Well, one big, one maybe not so big. Um, We'll be taking a look Uh, be asked to vote on a ban on abortions in late in the second trimester. This is, I don't know, like the zillionth time that this um, type of initiative has been on the ballot. Um, And we're not sure it's going to be on the ballot yet. Um, They are still have until March 3rd to submit petitions for that one. Um, Next week, we'll find out whether we're going to make a micro change in the statute that governs who can vote in Colorado, uh, changing the language from every citizen of the United States to only a citizen of the United States. Okay. So these are some hot button issues that mm-hmm. might make it to the ballot in yep. 2020. Anything else you're watching, Megan? I'm keeping an eye on Wolf reintroduction. Uh, there are definitely petition circulators out there right now uh, trying to get this on the ballot. It would require the state to uh, reintroduce wolves in uh, sort of less populated areas. Okay. I wonder if these are, and I don't want to discount the issues that they're addressing, are these also ways of driving voters in an important election? I think they're both. I mean, if you look at the folks backing uh, the uh, 22-week abortion ban, if you look at the people trying to reintroduce wolves, they are definitely driven by passion about those issues. But that does not mean that they won't get help from bigger political forces that also see those ballot measures as a great way to get the voters they want coming out to the polls. What do you think, Dana? Um, I share that sentiment, but I think it's a chicken and egg kind of situation where we are going to have a huge presidential race um, in the fall that will bring out a lot of voters, so why not get all of your hot ah. button issues on that ballot? If you know that turnout is going to be good, then that's when you put your issues on the ballot. Uh, in contrast to this past election, you know, obviously lower turnout than a, a general, uh, but still decent turnout for an off-year election. Okay, a lot of politics there. I wonder what other stories were particularly interesting to you this week. Dana? Um, our most interesting thing that we've been writing about is this fight um, over fight for your right to use the word backcountry in your business name. Uh, Backcountry.com, which is a gigantic online e-tailer, sort of the Amazon of of outdoor gear, 
um, a few years ago decided, hey, we're going to start branding our own um, gear with backcountry skis and backcountry okay. sweaters. Um, and so they've gone after a bunch of tiny businesses like Backcountry Nitro Can Coffee and um, sort of bullied them into giving up their trade names. Well, it sort of all uh, came to a head last week when we wrote a story about it and we learned about a guy out in uh, Michigan who has had backcountry skis for a really long time, back Marquette backcountry skis, and he's got very deep pockets and he dug in and said he has not given up his trade uh, trade name. So that's a fight that's ongoing. Um, we expect to hear from the CEO this afternoon in a one-on-one interview. So, uh Check out the Colorado Sun for that one. Ah, it's exciting. Of course, backcountry, it's a term that is so often used in the West and in Colorado, just in common parlance. The idea of saying that belongs to us is a bold one, for sure. But that's a fight that continues then. You're listening to Colorado Matters, by the way. That's Dana Caulfield from the Colorado Sun. And Megan Verlee joins us as we take stock of the week. Megan, uh, from here in CPR's quarters, uh, what have you been paying attention to this week besides the election? You know, I think I got to edit exactly one non-political story this week, uh, <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. So uh, we um, sent a reporter to a mili- an Army eSports recruiting event, so a Call of Duty tournament at a video game arena in Lakewood, and pretty much everything in that sentence was something I knew nothing about until this, uh, we, we sent her out, to look at how the Army is actually saying, hey, there are a lot of people who like to play military-based video games. Maybe they would like to join the military, and maybe if we go to them in this space, we can say, look, it's not all, I love this phrase from her story, buzz cuts and boot camp. <laughs> like, it, the, the Army has an, an eSports team that just plays in wow. eSports tournaments, Um, And because there are a lot of high-tech professions in the military, this is a chance for them to make the case like, hey, if you like doing cool things on a computer, come look at the Army. And of course, a lot of the work right now in the armed forces is that if you're flying drones remotely, these are skills that they need. Exactly. And she met young people there who are looking at the military and are looking at sort of techie careers within the military. Okay. Last time we had you two on together, we did a news quiz why don't we lock it in and make it a tradition? All right. Uh, this week, the question. Let's not make it a tradition that I lose. <laughs> okay. Well, that's on you, <laughs> Megan Verlee. The questions this week are about art in Colorado. We have this on our minds because of an excellent report this week from CPR's Stephanie Wolf about the story behind Mustang, the blue horse at DIA. You'll each get two questions, correct answers. Get the sound of the singing sinks at the Denver Art Museum. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Wrong answers get a sound effect from a video game called Blucifer, the Doom Horse of Denver. (laughs) All right. I understand that neither of you caught Stephanie Wolf's story, so you don't know the answers to these. Dana, what color did the artist originally plan to paint Lucifer. Plan to paint. Well, it, Luis Jimenez was known for using these really lurid colors on his work. Um, so could it have been purple? The correct answer is yellow or pink. In uh, some of the early sketches, Mustang is yellow, even pink. Uh, but New Mexico artist Luis Jimenez decided on blue modeling it after one of his own horses, a blue Appaloosa. Okay, Megan, we'll stick with the blue theme and talk about the big blue bear that is peering into the Colorado Convention Center. The late artist Lawrence Argent took his inspiration from something that happens in Colorado once in a while. 
When it does, we often see pictures of it on social media or video on the news. What scenario was he trying to capture with the blue bear? I, I assume bears breaking into houses? You gave me an easy one. Right. This week. You're winning so far. Very good, Dana. Back to you. I want to go to a clip from a 1953 film with Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. Tell you what, why don't we do all those things? But don't you have to work? Work? Now. Today is going to be a holiday. Okay, the film is called Roman Holiday. You have a grimace on your face. You're not happy with this question. It'll be fine. How is that film connected to public art in Grand Junction, Colorado? Wow, this is... This is so this hard. Is so hard. I feel sorry for Dana. This is really hard. This is so funny. Um, I, I just think of you as one of the smartest people I know, Dana Caulfield. So I gave you this one because it was difficult. No, it's okay. I'm going to just guess that it has something to do with the car being replicated. No. Uh, okay. All right. Roman Holiday was written by Dalton Trumbo. Oh. Who is from Montrose, moved to Grand Junction as a child. And there's a sculpture of him in a bathtub on the Main Street in Grand Junction. And on Main Street in Grand Junction, some of the public art is him in a bathtub. We have educated you, Dan. <laughs> yeah. He's, go back. I think he's typing in the bathtub. This is how he would write. Okay, Megan, we're going to play you a song written to accompany a piece of public art in Denver. <laughs> What to go to there? I see you bopping around. Okay, uh, what piece of art in Denver does that music accompany? I assume I'm going to be wrong, but I really want it to go with that weird red blobby sculpture over by the bridge over I-25, because I think the two would, like, really rock out together. Oh, that's the magic <laughs> Incorrect. That theme accompanies the dancers. <gasps> Near the Denver Performing Arts Complex along Spear Boulevard. I'm glad they ever played it. So I went up to it and I did not hear the theme. But when we were doing a history of that piece, we found out that there was basically a composition to accompany it. Thank you. Well, who does that, that? You win then, Megan. Is Woo! that right? Not as terrible yeah. this week. It's not a great win. We'll call yeah. it a Pyrrhic victory. Thank you both for being with us. It's and like looking. the Prop DD margin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and bringing it full circle, Megan Verlee and Dana Caulfield. Uh, Dana is senior editor of the Colorado Sun. Megan Verlee, editor at CPR News. This is Colorado Matters. The latest inductees into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame are a diverse group of frontier doctors, civil rights activists, lawyers, and a restaurant owner. Let's meet one of them. Velveeta Howell has been a lifelong champion for social justice. One of her many achievements, she was the first woman of color appointed as Colorado's deputy district attorney. Howell spoke with my colleague Avery Lill about her childhood in segregated Tuscaloosa, Alabama. 1963, she says, was pivotal. Alabama finally complied with the law to integrate schools. The University of Alabama 
admitted two African-American students. Witnessing the governor and hate-filled crowds attempt to deny these students entry is a memory forever etched in my mind. I decided that I would become a lawyer and dedicate my life's work to civil rights and social justice. How old were you when you saw that? Six years old. And were you watching on TV? No, my home was located within two to three blocks of the university. And so we were able to stand, my father and I, a bit away, but still see what was going on. Was that frightening to watch? No, it wasn't frightening. It was something that I just didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And so I said to my father, why do they hate us so much? And my father replied that there's no rational answer, but change is coming and you can be a part of that change. What a hard conversation for a six-year-old to have with her father. Were there other instances of overt racism that you had to talk about with your dad? Yes, Avery, there were. And there's one that occurred the year after I witnessed what was going on at the University of Alabama. My father had never taken me out alone. And when I turned seven, he invited me to go visit with someone. My dad stopped at a stop sign. We heard sirens and we saw flashing lights. So my dad pulled over. A policeman walked over to my dad, demanded that he get out of the car, and then began shouting at him, saying that he hadn't come to a complete stop. He also began referring to my father as boy. And this was a white policeman? This is a young white policeman. I heard this police officer demeaning him, and I couldn't sit still. I got out of the car. I walked up to the policeman. I told him my father had completely stopped and that he could not refer to him as a boy. So the policeman turned to my father and said, you need to shut her up. And I said, no, I won't shut up because this is not right what you're doing. And so at that point, he threatened me to take me to juvenile hall. As a seven-year-old. <laughs> as a seven-year-old. I had never heard of that place, but I dared him to take me there. I was right in his face, and I was looking at him in the eyes, which a lot of older African Americans never did when they encountered white people. He turned to my father, and he said, you need to make sure that this gal keeps her mouth closed. And then he said, you're free to go. My father wasn't ticketed, and we left. But I really didn't understand, because my father 
was prominent in the African-American community. People treated him with respect. In talking to my father about why this officer did what he did, my dad said, you know what, it's been there always. We have to defer to white people. When they walk down the sidewalks, we need to get off and let them pass. Wow. We can never argue, especially with law enforcement officers, because our people have been hanged for things that aren't even close to arguments. They've been hanged because they were simply African-Americans. To this day, I remember that conversation. There's so much to process as a seven-year-old. How do you go from being told that you have to move off of the sidewalks to making an entire career of not shutting up? My parents taught us that we could do anything we wanted as long as we worked hard, stayed the course, and had compassion for others. There was this foundation that made me strong and basically fearless. It was like, you and I are equal, so that's the way I will treat you. And in turn, I demand respect from you. So you decided, even as a young child, that you wanted to be a lawyer. Tell me how that brought you to Colorado. I had visited my sister, who was stationed at Fitzsimmons in her capacity as an Army officer. And when my feet landed on the soil, I just knew this is where I would go to law school and this is where I would call home. And what about Colorado really struck that conviction in you? Actually, it was the trees, the mountains, the serenity. There was a sense of peace. And I met some really nice people. So you attended law school at the University of Colorado, and you were only the eighth African-American female graduate. That led you to being one of a few women in a male-dominated field. How did those experiences shape you? Those experiences were somewhat difficult, as you can imagine. Basically, I was there alone. There were no African-Americans admitted to the first-year class during my second year, and there were only three in the third-year class. So it was a lonely existence. But I took the opportunity to commit to not ever having any student feel alone. And I understand that you almost left CU partially because of those lonely feelings. What made you decide to stay? Actually, it was the wisdom of my mother. She said to me, you have had this dream since you were six years old. You've always done exactly what you set your sights on. You've never not done what you set out to do. Did that same grit continue to help you in your path? Absolutely. I'm a person who welcomes challenges, and I was really happy to walk into that arena where 
people like me, women like me, had never been seen before. It was difficult somewhat because there was a lot of surprise at the very beginning. I was mistaken for a probation officer or someone else who would be in court Mm -hmm. quite frequently until they came to know me. Do you consider yourself to be a glass ceiling breaker? My goal was always to provide access, and that was my life's work. To me, it wasn't about breaking ceilings. It was doing what I feel I was born to do. What are you most proud of? I am proudest of the opportunity to change Colorado's health system. It did not really focus on diverse races, ethnicities, geographical areas. And so we actually became the second state to have an office of health disparities. So that really put Colorado on the cutting edge. You've been recognized for many accomplishments over the years. What does this award in particular mean to you? Well, Avery, it's the most meaningful because of its longevity. To stand as an example for all females, particularly those of color, over the generations leaves enduring footprints from which they too can better our world. My mantra is, out of one many, as they will, I stand on the shoulders of many. Velveeta Howell speaking with my colleague Avery Lill. Howell was inducted this week into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.